Welcome to Hacking the Self, integrating East and West, ancient wisdom with modern medicine. We'll explore holistic approaches to hacking your physical, mental, and emotional health through the prism of science, technology, and spirituality. Welcome to Hacking the Self. I'm Adrian Baker. Thank you for listening. For those of you who have been listening in the past, you're familiar with the fact most likely that I've been interested in mythology for the last, I'd say, year and a half. And that's something that's really happened after a prolonged period in which I was not interested in mythology at all. I actually was when I was younger in high school, but which was a time when I was both, I would say, into literature as well as history. And then after that period, I really became very interested in history, sociology, I would say just nonfiction generally. You know, I went through really most of the time since college, except for a period around the age of 30 when I read a lot of novels again. You know, for most of that time, my tendency is to read nonfiction. I've been interested in just understanding how the world works. And so that was my mentality for reading nonfiction. But I think, you know, I lost an appreciation for how important fiction is and what stories can teach us about how the world works. And throughout this time, especially, I would say a lot through my 30s, 37 now, and I was very drawn to a kind of scientific materialist, logical worldview, which very much goes well with someone. Even if your background's not in science, if you're the kind of person who's very logical and analytical and you enjoy viewing the world through that lens, that's going to map on very neatly onto your worldview. And I'm certainly still a very big fan of science and my tendencies to read nonfiction, but I've come to appreciate the power of stories and what myth can teach us. It was studying with one of my yoga teachers, Richard Freeman, who really helped me to appreciate the value of myth. You might remember Richard from being on the show about a month ago where he talked about the Bhagavad Gita. And around this time, I started reading Joseph Campbell, who also introduced me to the work of Carl Jung. And I've studied with Dr. Douglas Brooks since then, who's a wonderful, really incredible thinker who dives into the world of Indian mythology. And for anyone interested in looking at Indian mythology through a Jungian lens, that's something that Douglas does a lot. And I'd highly recommend checking out his talks. You can find that at rajanikayoga.com. But I've become increasingly interested in myths and specifically looking at it through the framework developed by Joseph Campbell and really before him, Jung, because Campbell really draws on Jung very heavily. So in my next couple of podcasts, both of my guests, Bernie Taylor and Spring Washam, will be talking about the value of myth and the hero's journey in their own right. So Spring talks about it through her own journey which she shared in her book, A Fierce Heart. And then Bernie's talking about it as well through his book, Before Orion. But I hope it's something that is of interest to you. It's an idea that I'd like to develop further on the show over the coming weeks and months. You know, there'll be a few themes that I explore, but this will definitely be a regular one that I come back to. So I hope that you're as interested in myth as I am. And if you're not at all, then totally understand that. And I just encourage you to give it a shot because like I said, I, I wasn't someone who was particularly 
into it and I've really come to appreciate the importance of it. I think also, even if we're not consciously into myths or what we would think of as mythology or, you know, sometimes, for example, something like fantasy or sci-fi, all of us really are on some level. Because if you think of a couple of the core universal things that really appeal to everyone, I would say are music and stories, right? It's the reason we go to movies or watch TV or even just your desire to tell stories about your own day or your life, right? It's how you make sense of the world. And I think stories are so crucial because they give us a sense of how to act in the world and how not to act as well. And so that's really important. I think one thing that Jordan Peterson has helped me to realize is that there's a common way of, of looking at the world in our day and age, which is the scientific worldview. And that's a worldview in which the world is a place of objects. And that's really important. And that's a, a valid way of approaching the world so that we can understand and make sense of the world around us. But that's not the only way to look at the world. Because we need to, perhaps the most important question for us is how to act in the world. And when we think about it that way, the, the world isn't just a place of objects, it's a place of tools. And those tools are things that we perceive that help us to move forward towards our goals. For those of you who are more interested in this idea, I definitely encourage you to check out his Jordan Peterson's Maps of Meaning course, which I'm in the middle of. It's absolutely fascinating. But... With that said, I want to introduce you to today's guest, Spring Washam, who I'm so excited to have on the show, not only because she has her own hero's journey, the story of her own life, which is really a remarkable story of overcoming adversity. She did not have an easy setup to say the least. I mean, that's a mild way of putting it. Spring was definitely in a lot of ways had the cards stacked against her and just who she is today is remarkable. And of course, she is largely that person. Her character was forged because she had to overcome all of these obstacles, which you'll hear about in our conversation and which you can learn more about in our book. But I can certainly attest to Spring's character personally because she's someone who I call one of my teachers. I had the privilege to go on one of her retreats in Peru. For those of you who've listened before and know that I've talked about the ayahuasca retreat that I went to last May and how significant that was for me. Spring is the person who organized that retreat, which is really the first retreat that integrates ayahuasca and local Shipibo shamanism with Buddhism. And for those of you who are more interested in learning about that, I would highly encourage you to check out Lotus Vine Journeys. Dot com. Also, we'll provide the link to that in the, the show notes as well. But I can say that if you are interested in working with ayahuasca, and I would definitely really encourage everyone to do their research before. It is not for everyone, but I found it to be amazingly beneficial. And if you're interested, you can have a preliminary conversation with Spring to see if it's right for you. And you can find all that information on lotusvinejourneys.com. I'd also encourage you to check out, for those of you who enjoy our conversation, her book, A Fierce Heart, because I thought it was really inspiring and also it's really well written. It's very readable and she it's infused with all of this 
language and it really follows the narrative structure of the hero's journey. So if you enjoy some of the ideas that we'll talk about today, I think you'll enjoy reading that book. But just a little bit of background about Spring before we start. So Spring is a well-known meditation teacher, author, and visionary leader based in Oakland, California. She is the author of A Fierce Heart, Finding Strength, Courage, and Wisdom in Any Moment. Spring is considered a pioneer in bringing mindfulness-based healing practices to diverse communities. She is one of the founders and core teachers at the East Bay Meditation Center, which is located in Oakland, California. She is also a member of the Teachers Council at Spirit Rock Meditation Center in Northern California, where she's practiced and studied Buddhist philosophy in both the Theravada and Tibetan schools of Buddhism for the last 20 years. Those of you who are very interested in Buddhism, especially in the U.S., I'm sure are familiar with Spring's mentor and teacher, Jack Kornfield, who's really one of the leading figures of the Dharma in the United States. And as I mentioned before, she is the founder of Lotus Vine Journeys, an organization that blends indigenous healing practices with Buddhist wisdom. So thank you so much for tuning in. And now I give you my conversation with Spring Washam. Your continued support makes future episodes possible. You can help by heading over to patreon.com slash hacking the self. So thank you again, Spring, for making the time to speak with me and come on the Hacking the Self podcast. I really, really appreciate it. Yeah, I'm happy to. Well, as I told folks in the introduction, I, I gave sense, I gave people a sense of your background and also mentioned the fact that I'm lucky enough to uh, count you as one of my teachers, which is how we know each other. And I really want to get into your book, which is a lovely book, A Fierce Heart, Finding Strength, Courage, and Wisdom in Any Moment. And I love the way you talk about sort of mythology. And I kind of want to get into the idea of the hero's journey, which you talk a lot in there. But I'm curious to sort of get there, or I'd like to get there, I should say, by way of your own journey. And so I'm wondering if you could start by telling our listeners how you first became interested in Buddhism. Yes, thank you. It's kind of my entry point into Buddhism really happened by accident, I guess you could say. I mean, I not really by accident, but, you know, first got into meditation in my early 20s, so about 20 years ago, and I was practicing on my own. Somebody left a book at my house and it, it was all about meditation. It was one of his books called Man's Eternal Quest. And something really magical happened when I read that book. It was for the first time, it awakened a very, very deep desire in me to live a spiritual life. And so I started to practice meditation right after I, I read that whole book. But the book didn't give a lot of instruction. It basically was saying, you know, just love God, feel God. So I did that for about a year, practiced in that tradition, and I would go up to their center living in Oakland. They have a center near here, Oakland, California. And they would just, we would sit for three hours, three hour meditations, but no one ever said anything about how to practice meditation. You know, they would chant in between the hours you know, and my mind would be going crazy for the whole three hours, you know, I didn't really know. So fast forward, a year later, it dawned on me, I need help. I don't think I'm doing this right. 
I think I need a teacher. I think I need instruction. And my life was falling apart. And I heard about this retreat in the desert where it's 10 days. They give you instruction, vegetarian food, and in silence. And then I I just knew I had to get to that retreat. And so I got to the retreat. And lo and behold, guess who was there leading the retreat? Jack Cornfield. And it was Buddhist. And I was like, Buddhism? Oh, what's that? And over the 10 days, I learned so many things. And I definitely got instruction on meditation. And I heard the Buddhist teachings for the first time. And they deeply, deeply resonated with me. I immediately decided that that was the path that I wanted to follow. And so that was kind of my entry. It was unknown. I didn't, I had no idea who was leading it. But of course, isn't that how our lives work? It's magical in that way. And, you know, that retreat was really life-changing. So did you even know who Jack Cornfield was at that time? No, when I was wandering around before the actual retreat started, you know, we were in our rooms unpacking and I was all frazzled. Everyone kept saying, I can't wait to see Jack. I can't. And I was like, who is this? I didn't really care, though. I had so many problems in that moment. You know, I was sort of like I arrived at the retreat in an ambulance. I basically tell the story in my book. I chained smoke for 10 hours and drank Diet Mountain Dew and cried because I had just broken up with my boyfriend. So I arrived in the retreat in an altered state. <laughs> right. And not the good kind. Yeah. <laughs> not the good altered. No, definitely the kind of altar that's like, get this lady some help. I mean, I almost passed out on the registration table. I was laughing as I read that passage. <laughs> And I only could laugh because I know your story has turned out very well, but <laughs> that was, I think so many people can resonate with that. I certainly can. You know, a lot mm-hmm. of people need to really hit, if not rock bottom, something approaching it before they kind of realize that call for help or make a change. And you talk in your book about hearing the great calling And I'm wondering if you could tell about a little bit to our listeners about what is the great calling and how did you first hear this call? Yeah, and you're right. I talk a lot about, you know, I think the whole point of the book in some way, a fierce heart, you know, finding strength, courage and wisdom in any moment is about those moments that we think are the worst moments of our lives. So many people in 12-step communities at my retreats in Peru or in meditation retreats, who had that rock bottom moment. And often when someone hits the bottom, what's interesting is they kind of springboard up, you know, they wake up, you know, they start to go, oh my God, you know, and something good can happen, it seems, but it's a painful place, but also a beautiful, illuminating place of new beginnings. Once you hit the bottom, you open your eyes and you make a change. Usually there's a shift in that moment. So so I think that retreat for me was that answering the call because I deeply wanted to live a spiritual life, but my life leading up to that retreat was just madness. You know, I was, I write about living in East Oakland. <laughs> we lived in this really bad neighborhood. Everybody was just going off all the time. Our dog was mad our dog would try to bite everybody. It was weird. And I was at this job. I was selling timeshare at this place that was just 
all salespeople. And it was just really, I didn't want to do that. I, I got talked into that job. A long story. I had a relationship that was really bad. All we did was fight. I was very depressed. And I kept thinking, this isn't my life. And there was something calling me onto a different path. And sometimes that's what happens is everything starts to fall apart. And so that's what happened. I got fired. My car was about to get repossessed. The relationship, you know, was definitely ending and I had nowhere to go. I, I was like, what do I do now? And and I knew I just needed to get to that retreat. So in some level, the, the great call, it was my deep desire to learn and wake up and grow. It was interesting. It felt like once I got to that retreat, it was like a new life started for me. After that retreat, I went up to the hill. I tell that story. There was this little hill behind the meditation hall. And I went up there and I, I ordained myself on the hill and said, it was kind of a dramatic moment, of course. I was like, I'll follow these teachings till the end. You know, I declared something like that and chanted. And then I walked back down. But I think the calling, it was just, it's like something's beckoning you onto a higher path your life purpose, why you came here. And I think that's what's so interesting about the myths of the world and rather they're fairy tales or Hollywood movies or Native American stories. There's always the character is being summoned to a different level, a different awareness, a strength, some quality that they don't know about themselves, some insight. And so the great call is a, I think all of us have that, those moments. And I think some listen and some don't, but ultimately I think it's the call you have to answer. If you don't, life can become very painful. Can you say more about that in your experience as a teacher from what you noticed? Why in your experience do some people fail to heed that call or do they fail to heed it as soon as they could have? Well, I think it's fear often that keeps people from really following that voice. It's fear, you know, people live lives or the whole goal is to become settled and become safe and to everything looks predictable, looks normal. Let's not do anything irrational seeming or crazy. So there can be a pressure for them to continue with their family or their marriage or their job, even though maybe they're deeply, deeply unhappy. And so I think the unhappiness is a door. But in our culture, that kind of unhappiness is sort of pathologized. It's shut down, right? So if somebody becomes really deeply depressed and they're like, I need to make a change, maybe they don't make that change. They just see it, oh, I have an illness. I better treat that as instead of it being an opening because the calling in itself if we look at the story of the Buddha, when he was 29 years old, he had everything, everything you could want, a beautiful princess and heir to it all and royalty and, and loved and worship. But when he was 29, he became unhappy. And so this unhappiness grew, this dissatisfaction you know, suddenly he didn't want to stay where he was. He wanted to go outside the palace. He wanted to explore. He said, I want to see something else. There's got to be more. So the call in him 
is also the myth of this kind of archetypal story. And so what if he hadn't heeded the call? Where would I be now? Where would the Buddhist <laughs> worldview? What if he said, well, I'll just stay here and deal with my depression. You know, it was like the, the, the feelings themselves sometimes are really important, even though they're uncomfortable. They are leading us somewhere. They pull us out of the familiar into the unfamiliar and we don't trust that in our culture it's like shut it down go back to work don't question this you know that's the kind of mode that our culture we sort of suppress this kind of thing so that can be unfortunate the trust you speak of sounds like a sort of inner trust trusting yourself and your own intuition and i think a lot of people aren't sure how to connect with that inner voice or even they've lost trust in themselves. How can people even begin to establish that sort of sense of, of self-trust where they can trust their own intuition? Yeah, I hear you because a lot of people actually have a really low self-esteem and there's a lot of confusion in the mind, right? They don't trust their heart. They don't trust themselves. That's exactly it. I think a lot of people, what happens, how they start to learn to trust that is they start to become aware of the need to have some kind of calming practice, a stillness practice. So it can start, I've met so many people that started off on this path through yoga, right? They just started to go to their neighborhood yoga center and just the hour there that they would just feel their body, it begins to have a profound shift, right? So anytime you you stop, you give yourself some time to stop the habitual pattern, you disrupt that flow. So maybe you decide, I'm going to walk every day. And, and during that walk, I'm going to listen to beautiful music and connect with myself. It stops there with an intention to listen to yourself in some way. And I think people can enter into that even unconsciously. Like my brother, I have a younger brother. He recently decided to start eating really healthy and running. And through that process, it led to deeper states of awareness. And now he started to practice meditation. So just his food choices changing and then this ability to connect, this longing to connect to himself deeper because the call is there. It's in every fiber of our being. It's like it's knocking on the door louder and louder and it gets louder, you know, as we ignore it year after year, you know, it can get louder until we start to say, okay, what is going on here? Or things become more and more chaotic, right? They're not functioning the way they used to. That also wakes us up. Right. And you talk about that in your book in terms of that's one of your chapters you talk about into the underworld, right? Having this kind of event yeah. that brings us into the underworld and, and wakes us up. Can you talk about sort of this idea of the underworld and how that relates to, I actually realized we just, we didn't clearly define the hero's journey. Can you kind of explain the difference between the great call and the hero's journey and then talk about how a trip into the underworld can kind of be a necessary path into our own awakening. Yeah. So in the hero's journey as, and I think the person who really coined this or brought this forth is Joseph Campbell, who was the great mythologist. And he really, one of my 
most inspired books is the hero with a thousand faces where he looks at all these different world myths of you know the story of the turtle or the you know the princess and the palace or the the story of the buddha these archetypal myths and what he did was he synthesized all this information and we can see it in star wars and you know all the movies where the theme becomes a person, They things aren't working, right? They go out. So they hear the great call. And then the second stage of hearing the call is they have to usually go through what's called the road of trials. The road of trials are you have to go out and you have to slay the dragon. You have to grow. You know, that's a spiritual also quality where somebody on the spiritual path, they usually have to go to, you know, they end up going in a deep retreat or they spend some time with their life and they have to meet themselves. So rather it's more of the adventurer going out into the forest or or something. It's, you know, you have to meet a part of yourself and they call that the road of trials or the the great test, the difficulties. You can see that in a story about Odysseus going off and, you know, people rescuing, you know, the got to rescue the princess, right? And you have to fight your way and, or save the world, Luke Skywalker, or, you know, all these stories that the hero or the heroine, you have to go out and you have to conquer something. And then, of course, what makes the hero's journey beautiful is there's always then the return, right? So it's like, it's the calling, then you fight whatever you need to fight within yourself to recognize who you really are. I think that's the key point in the the road of trials or the road of test and being the biblical of Jesus and 30 days and 30 nights, he had this battle, right? With And the Buddha had a battle with Mara after six years of almost killing himself. He has this epic showdown with the demon Mara. Like we all have to kind of go through these things and then we win, of course, that's part of it. You know, the hero or heroine wins and then they come back to the community. They return. And I talk about this archetypal pattern is in my book, right? In the last few chapters are the return back to the community and when you return, you're, you're bringing the knowledge and the gifts and the, the wisdom, or maybe you save the world and then, you know, and all the stories, right? The hero comes back and everyone goes, yay, you know, <laughs> you're back and you're now enlightened or you, you've attained some deeper knowledge. So that's kind of the archetype of the hero or heroine's journey. And there's, there's different stages in that, but that's sort of a broad overview. You know, one theme I sort of keep hearing you coming back to in terms of, you know, whether it was talking about the story of the Buddha or Jesus and the hero's journey, or even in your previous response, they were all sort of alluding to this notion of self-awareness. And obviously it's, it's about a lot more than that. I mean, the hero's journey is about the grandest themes and the end of the journey, you know, this happy ending, but the self-awareness really is kind of the first step <laughs> on that path, right? In, you know, you can't walk that path. You don't begin to walk it until you have self-awareness. And, and one thing that I like to tell people about meditation who aren't familiar with it to kind of demystify it is, 
you know, sometimes they'll point him to Daniel Goleman's model, but I, I really think that it's helpful to think about mindfulness or meditation as a tool for cultivating self-awareness. And then when you have that foundation, you can really begin to manage your own emotions more effectively. And you talk about this in your book. You talk early in the book about the prison of the mind. So I'm wondering if you can tell people a little bit about what is the prism of the mind and how did you come to understand the structures of the prison of your own mind? Right. So, you know, again, that's kind of what all of the stories are pointing to, right? It's like freeing ourselves from our own self-concepts, right? And I always tell people in Oakland or everywhere I go that, you know, we're so much stronger than we know, but we won't know that until we're tested, right? You don't really know who you are until you're in difficult moments. It's the difficulties of our lives that I know it's like this cliche, but they do build strength. They do build character. They do build compassion. You know, I remember my Tibetan teacher used to always tell me, Spring, the really best thing about pain, the absolutely most wonderful thing about suffering, the glory of it all, the hardships, he would say, is you get to develop compassion. <laughs> and I would just look at it. I'm like, right, right. Compassion. You know, I didn't get it then right, that that how this quality affects us and how it works with the prison of the mind. And so so from how I'm writing it, it's, you know, there's nothing new even in that concept of the prison of, you know, that we're imprisoning ourselves because we don't really know who we really are and the prison of concepts and beliefs about our limitation and who we are. I'm just, you know, I'm just a poor black person. I'm just all this. I'm just a woman or I'm just, I'm not good enough. We all lay these heavy burdens of stories on top of everything. And that does become like a prison cell. How we think, you know, what we believe uh, comes to pass. And it becomes a door. We can shut ourselves in based upon our thoughts. And so part of the awareness that you're just speaking about is looking at all the ways that we've imprisoned ourselves with our thinking, with our beliefs. And there's a beauty in the great call because usually you have to go on some kind of adventure. You have to go outside of your normal routine to meet yourself sometimes. Right. You can't just be in your little office, you know, like you use that. OK, let's look at that movie, The Matrix. Right. There he is in his office day to day. Right. Humdrum. And then suddenly this whole thing happens and he has to go way out of that. So there's something about the routine of our life creates a deadening in a way. We just like day after day, we think the same thing. We do the same thing. We eat the same food. We have the same thought. We have the same conversation. Often there has to be something that shakes us up out of that. And that's part of what I talk about. So awareness does that. It starts to put us in touch with something else, right? A new voice, awareness of something more than that prison cell, that cubicle, that whatever it is that we're attached to. What are some of the most toxic limiting beliefs that you encounter in your students? I think that the ones that are the most familiar for me is this very, very deep sense of self-hatred. 
And I used to think that that was more regulated to communities of color or people who grew up with a lot of trauma or people who were had less income. And then it was really, really revolutionary when I was in my teacher training many years ago with Jack Hornfield. And as part of my six-year teacher training, I would sit in on all of his meetings with people during retreats. Some of these were long retreats, and I'd basically listen to what people were experiencing in their meditation. I was listening to them explain what their mind was like. And I would see these people come in, and I would think, oh, they must have it all together. And they're on the cover of Yoga Journal. They have a lot of power and influence, and they would be suffering just like everybody else, eating disorders and some in violent relationships. And I was astounded. And it was really a wake-up call for me that, wow, the for, so for me, the, the root, and this is why I teach so much love retreats and compassion retreats, is this intense self-hatred. So that inner critic, the judge, it's sort of our karma of the Western psyche very painful. Why do you think Western culture in particular struggles with issues of self-hatred? Well, I think that that I could say so many different things about why does it seem like Westerners as a kind of collective, you know, we all have this individual karma and then there's kind of a collective karma, like a cultural karma. Like we're all kind of swimming in this way in which we view ourselves as you know, it's like this inferiority and superiority at the same time. Like I'm superior over everybody else, yet I kind of hate myself. So it's just the way that the ego views itself. It's like this perfectionism. It comes with a kind of very intense ambition. So it's motivated by a drive of this kind of uh, very intellectual. It kind of comes also from being not so connected to the body, much more connected to the mind. A mind-dominated culture will tend to try to ascribe to something that it's impossible, like a standard that we have a standard of beauty, a standard of what we're, everything is viewed in this kind of very superficial way. And it's very painful and we all buy into that. And so it's being sold all around us continuously, this message, you need to be this, you need to look like this, you need to have that, you need to. So it's kind of like a collective delusion and that we all suffer in it. And I also think that, you know, our, as a culture, there's a lot of blood on our hands, <laughs> like past actions. Say more about that. So there's just a lot of, you know, we inherit the energy of what's come before us, you know. So if we look at our, our Western world, we've been involved in a lot of wars and a lot of things and a lot of all kinds of different things that are dominating other cultures, or we have slavery, we have genocide of native people, and all of this kind of, it permeates in us. And this is kind of more of a shamanic energy that I've been helping people work with. Like, it's like, this lives in our cells, and it doesn't make us feel good about ourselves. It's not something that's celebrated deep down. It's something that makes a lot of guilt and fear and anxiety, actually. So that's one thing. And then again, it's just the way our culture is set up. It's very individualistic. 
very ego-based and very competitive. We compete in our culture. It's like top schools are sharp infested waters. And that doesn't lead to happiness. Those, that way of being, if we're trying to compete for real happiness, we're in the completely wrong direction, right? And so we all buy into, oh, right, I'll get happy if I get all these things. And it just makes us kind of crazy. If someone had criticized individualism before, I wouldn't have understood their criticism. You know, I'm thinking back to before I was an expat and I now spent a lot of time abroad. I just, I wouldn't have understood someone who didn't like individualism because in my mind, I think individualism equaled freedom. But having lived away from the U.S. for a number of years now and being in Asia where the collective is very strong... I certainly see the pros and cons to each. And I I think that you can have too much of one or the other, but you know, you don't want the emphasis completely to the group while to the point where it eradicates individual identity and autonomy. I do think that notion of natural rights coming from the individual, I, I do buy into that basic Western worldview. But I also think that you can have too much individualism. You know, we are social animals. We're meant to be part of a community. And I'm wondering sort of what you make of that extreme emphasis on individualism and specifically individualism as equated with freedom. Yeah, it's definitely an experiment. I feel like we're learning what is real freedom. What is freedom? The people who fight for it the most in our country, those who consider themselves extremely patriotic, what's interesting is they feel that they're not free, right? (laughs) They'll often be the ones that, well, they'll often say, I'm being controlled by the government, you know? So again, the mind, (laughs) they have to fight against something. You know, so even when they're being completely like, okay, you can live the life, you can have all your guns, you can practice your religion, there's a sense of it's never enough, right? It's like, I'm still being controlled by something. So we're always looking for the answer, right? But the answer is inside. That's what's the funny thing. It's like, right, you're being controlled. Exactly. That's the prison. We're the gatekeeper. The warden is in us. And so we're looking all the time. But it's never, and that's the prison of the mind. I talk about, you know, the key and we're always looking, you know, and so we blame, okay, it's you, it's the president, it's the this, it's the that, it's, you know, people from another country, you know, they're controlling me, you know, or so I just noticed that people that are extremely those who want to fight for freedom are the ones that feel the most controlled and and they have to lead, they engage in violence because of that. So we have to look at the mind here. You know, where is freedom? There are a couple of things to say on this point, I think. What is freedom and how is that related to one's ability to perceive that? There's this notion of delusion in Buddhism and having right view. And just to stay on this idea of the collective and this idea of light and shadow that we've been talking about, I think one really interesting example of the collective unconscious and the shadow in that collective unconscious is what's happening in the United States right now. So if I can share a brief story, I was on a Ram Dass retreat in early December and there was this South African guy who came to speak and he spoke to a crowd that he knew was 
you know, overwhelmingly liberal. And he said, I would caution you. I believe what he, he said, he started with an observation. What I'm seeing people doing right now is they're blaming a lot of their problems on one man. And that one man is Donald Trump. And I think that hit the nail on the head. And I think there's something just very true about this. And, and it cuts both ways. It doesn't, it's not just about Trump, whether you voted for him or didn't vote, vote for him. We have a tendency in general to project our problems onto somebody else. And I'm wondering if you can turn that back onto people in the communities that you work with, you know, in the communities that I think both of us have a lot of experience spending time with, you know, meditation communities, yoga communities. What do you hear people in these worlds talking about in terms of the current political and cultural moment that might reflect an unwillingness to face our collective shadow? Yeah, I mean, I was just teaching this weekend retreat in Sacramento, California on the weekend. And on Sunday night, I got, you know, a lot of people had went out and were marching. There was all these uh, women's marches and demonstrations on Saturday and in the afternoon. And on Sunday, um, people came and they were asking me a lot of questions about it. And it's funny that you, you know, you wanted to talk about the archetype of the hero's journey. And I really, really, Adrian, this is exactly what I really think. It's what I thought after the election. It's what I believe now. It's what I teach about now. And it's how I'm able to work with, you know, in Oakland, I'm around so many activists. Oakland, California is a hotbed of activism, social engagement, political organizers, grassroots activists. This is where the, you know, Black Panthers started and, you know, huge campaigns here and always stuff happening. So, you know, obviously it's a, also very political. So, and the, but I still teach the same thing. And, and because I really do view my life and it may be all the shamanic work that I've done as a mythological story. I'm a character in a story. I am living the great call. I'm living the hero, the heroine's journey. So what I've noticed about these stories, if we look at even, you know, Cinderella to Goldilocks to, you know, Return of the Jedi, there's always a villain and there always is a villain and there always has to be someone who makes you grow. You tend not to do it on your own. The mind doesn't develop the qualities. You kind of need someone to force you to remember who you are, to look at your strength, to grow. And so I feel like for me, I didn't think I would be living through these kind of experiences of a whole civil rights movement again, you know, right? we thought, oh, it's all done. Yes, history. That's for the history books, you know, and now here we are like, wow, I've got to respond. So I think these kind of moments are part of the story. The hero of every story always has to have a villain. Have you ever seen a good story without a villain, Adrian, where there's somebody trying to get you out of the way stop you from achieving, you know, what you need to get, challenging you, and you're always very unprepared. It's always kind of the little guy, you know, when you look at Lord of the Rings, right? It's Fredo, who's just kind of helpless. 
right? And he has to overcome this huge obstacle. Again, that story is very much the classic journey. So rather you have a boss who you have to work on, or you have a president who it feels like is pushing you to some kind of opportunity to grow, use your voice, stand up, create the change you want to see in the world, be a part of what you want. It's a, he's a, a fantastic agent of change. And I couldn't imagine a more archetypal being than what we have right now. I mean, it's literally going to be historical. They will be talking about this chapter later and analyzing it. So that's what I think. So that's making lots of sense in terms of what you just said with respect to the archetypal framework. I know that one thing you would push me to do if I were in your classroom is to reflect on language, including the mind's need to tell a story. So the mind has this need to always spin and tell stories. So let's take what you've just said to the next level and say, okay, that's one story what we have. You know, this president is a villain, right? And he's the source of our problems. But isn't that's just a story too, right? And how does that relate to right view and compassion? Well, I think that's exactly right. So rather relate to him as a savior or a villain, you know, because there's a whole group of people that relate to that situation. And that's what's so amazing about our perception, right? It's like this, some people are like, this is the greatest thing that's ever happened. You know, we're saved. Other people, it's, it is funny in a way. Okay. So I think, you know, we're all waking up at different periods. We're all learning at different stages. We all have to go through cycles and we all have to see the results of cause and effect. Everything that happens, there's a cause to it. You know, the thing about right view and Buddhism is to understand the causal nature of reality. Like you want an apple seed, apple tree, you have to plant an apple seed. No matter how much you want oranges, you're not going to get that. You have to plant the seed that you want to grow. And so for me, this is just an opportunity for me and others to watch their mind. You know, as practitioners, we have to embrace every moment as a learning and not see something as valuable and something is not, or something is an obstacle and something is not. What I'm trying to teach people and what I'm trying to live myself is to see the value in what looks like the dark moment. Like, actually, this could be really helpful. You know, I I don't know what's going to happen. Everything's uncertain. Well, isn't that kind of what the Buddha has shared as a core teaching? It's all unstable. It's all concepts on some level. And so it's just being exposed for what it is right now, our story on some level, right? We don't have the security blanket. But I think that it's an opportunity for everyone to just, as a, uh, people who are on the path or on, walking a spiritual path, be it Hinduism, Buddhism, Sufism, paganism, you know, whatever you subscribe to, you have to watch your mind. You have to look at your mind. And we want to be looking at it as the school of life. And that's another, that follows my next chapter. And our conversation is following the chapter. So <laughs> one right after, and that we use every single moment as a teaching. It's not wasted. This isn't a waste of time what's happening. This is like, wow, this is jewels, even if it's painful for some of us. This is good stuff. How do we do that? It sounds like a great idea. And then in the moment, so many of us fall into 
habitual, reactive, sometimes destructive patterns. So how do we maintain that right view in difficult times? You have to practice it all the time because our mode, our habit is to go so quickly into victimization, right? I mean, that's just oh my God, you know, everything's against me. This is bad. So we have to remember it. And where I really honed that view was when I lived in the jungle for a year. I really started to see, I was living with a group of people that that we all said, we're going to practice like this. Every difficult moment we're going to use to wake up. Are we in this or are we not in this? And it was amazing. We all kind of said we're in. So that means every drama, that means everything that happens that we are get so triggered by, we use it to wake up. And that actually was a, such a fantastic practice for me. And when I came home, I was integrating and all this stuff was coming up in me and it all seemed very dark and, and painful when I first came back from Peru after being there a year. And I had to, all this unresolved childhood trauma and I really went through like a dark night of the soul. And I wasn't expecting that, but this concept that we had been honing was there. Wait, everything is good. It does have some good in it. And I remember through this really, the dark night is where I became the most creative. It was when I finished my book. It was when I launched a new organization. It was when I... I, I met myself somewhere. And so for me at that moment, it was almost like a validation of that view that yes, I fell so deeply down. It was temporary, but it was something that needed to happen. There was a huge kind of breaking down of some kind of structure within my own heart. And I, I opened to it as a teaching. I really did. It was very painful. It went on for a year. And then it all came back together again, you know, as I knew it would. But I held on to that belief that the darkest hour is it heralds the dawn. And we know that also from the great myths of the world that, you know, when you're stuck in a prison and you go through that, you're, you're lost in it. And then, and then suddenly there's the breakthrough. That's just kind of what we were talking about with the rock bottom. The rock bottom is your darkest moment and your best moment because you have to hit some place that's so bad, you come out of it full steam towards a new way of being. So what we call good and bad becomes very relative in a way. So I've learned to look at these, I don't know, I just, it's something I'm deeply exploring, but that is the premise of my book, A Fierce Heart, finding strength, courage, and wisdom in those moments that feel that we don't feel that we could even live through. Not only do we live through them, we thrive after they're over. That's what I've seen in myself and then others. So we've been talking about Buddhism and the ability to sharpen the mind and to free ourselves from our own thoughts through practice. But let's talk about an impasse at which you found yourself in your own practice. I know you'd been doing a lot of long silent retreats, I believe multiple three-month silent retreats, yet you found yourself still hung up on particular issues from your past. So meditation and even the larger structure of Buddhist meditation with the values and the ethics and the worldview that went with it wasn't able by itself to cut through some of your remaining knots. And I'm wondering if you can talk about what you see as the limits of 
meditation and how this led you down the shamanic path that you found in Peru? Yeah. Well, you know, I talk about this and I'm really excited because I'm working on also a proposal. I have a tell-all shamanic book in me. It's definitely my next project between other projects. (laughs) It's kind of like a Carlos Castaneda girl version, you know, Peru over Mexico, you know, something like that. I'm kind of framing it as that. Anyway, but yeah, I did. I had, I was on a long retreat and I was doing concentration practices. I was doing a heart practice, concentration practice, and I completely fell apart. It was like, I fell apart in a way that I didn't even understand. I got, I had vertigo and I was nauseous and I had a ringing in my ears and it was trauma. It was like a PTSD response to the present moment that I just didn't, I understood, but then I didn't know how to be with it. And at the retreat center I was at, neither did the teachers. They were familiar, but what's happening is a lot more meditation communities are becoming aware of trauma. We're all learning collectively together about what, how trauma is affected by med- deep meditation practice. But this was a while ago, so it was still it was still in the in the early stages of it. So I left the retreat a couple of weeks early, completely destabilized, and I ran into a psychologist friend of mine who I really, really trusted, and she had told me that she'd been working with ayahuasca and she had overcome a whole bunch of childhood trauma. And I just adored this woman. And she said, come with me. And we're having a ceremony with a small group. I will be there. And I want you to try this. It could really help with what's happening to you. But I was so desperate. I was like, I'll do anything. And I went. And then sure enough, this was about eight and a half years ago, nine years ago, almost now. That one night, I learned more about myself and what was going on with myself than I had at the whole three-month course I just left And that one night. And so I knew immediately I would go to Peru because that's the type of person that I am. I wanted to understand it at the source. Like, what is this? You know, I wanted to understand the lineage and all of that. And so that's, it led me really down that path of healing. So For many years, I told nobody about my work with ayahuasca. I would go to spend a month, a year at least in the jungle doing retreats and also working with it quite a lot in California with small, very small groups, private groups. And it was just treating trauma. It was just, I was just healing, 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 healing. And then I got this deep desire that I I wanted to train for a longer period. It was calling me, you know, and I could say a lot more about what that, again, the great calling, right? It was like, hello, uh, come live in Peru for a year. So I did that, which was completely insane and beautiful and mystical. And then out of that, when I came back, then I knew immediately that I was going to start Otis Fine Journeys, that I wanted to help other people. I was ready at that point. So again, that maps the stages of the great call, right? You have this problem, you heal yourself, you go slay the dragon, you know, living in a jungle was kind of my worst fear. I'm a city slicker. You know, I had cockroaches jumping on my head and rats chewing on my tambo and 
mosquitoes and you know that wasn't an easy thing to do but yet it was the happiest year of my life so I say that to this day it was the happiest year I've ever had on this planet was that year period it's just a kind of freedom that I felt I had sold almost everything I had I sold my car I sold every I had a storage unit with very little in it I just felt this freedom I was living in nature I was committed. The only thing I was focused on was learning all this new information, you know, working with the plant intensively, working with people, working with groups, working with my mind. And the work was just so fulfilling. I just felt like I was so right on purpose that there was a certain happiness in that. You know, you're you're where you're supposed to be. There was a joy in that. You referenced Lotus Vine Journeys. I'm wondering if you can say more about that organization. Well, yeah, and that's where I met you and so many other amazing beings. I mean, it started off with, you know, Lotus Vine Journey has evolved. It was going to be just an organization of me hanging out with all my Buddhist friends in Peru. And I would help the retreats. I would lead these retreats, but... It started off, I had a a smaller vision. It didn't, now it's become like a bigger thing. And I've had to grow with my level of responsibility and organization and everything else. But it was going to be a retreat dedicated to people already pretty advanced on their spiritual path, meaning they were already meditators. They were already living these principles. And then we would also have these study Buddhism, do yoga eat a really primarily vegan, even diet, focusing a lot on the philosophy of mindfulness, awareness. And then we would have these eight ayahuasca ceremonies. And wow, what a journey it's been for me and for all our guests. And our guests become like our family and friends. We run into them, we work with them. We, I see them in other places, but it's evolved. So this year we have five retreats and I don't know, Adrian, they're just, everyone changes my life. They are the most powerful experiences I ever had. I grow exponentially as a teacher, as a healer, as a leader, as a human being. It's amazing. It's an acceleration of consciousness for all of us and myself. Yeah, I can barely hang on when I'm down there. I can hang on, but it's like I go through a whole journey with you. And we all do. We're all on it. We're all on the roller coaster there. And it's amazing. It's it's really exciting and I was born for it. Everything's been leading up to that. <laughs> so, Yes, I think all of us can relate to that experience of barely hanging on, at least all of us who were there for sure. By the time we got to the September retreat, you know, wow, it felt like light years. It felt like I'd been alive on the planet for like an extra 10 years. <laughs> So we continue to improve with every every day there and understand and grow and and learn from and the guests like you and all these other amazing people who come even when it's challenging I we you know it's not always easy we go through these moments that are really hard all of us together you know that but then look what it gives you right it gives you a kind of strength of spirit I mean, you're, you've left there and you're starting this and all these other, you know, it gives you some kind of power to endure it and to free ourselves in some way. 
You talk about psychedelics as an accelerator of consciousness. What do you mean by that? Yeah, yeah. And I, I'm definitely controversial, you know, and, and you know, around primarily the debate is around the what we call one of the precepts, which is a precept in the, the, the Buddhist tradition where it says no intoxicants. And the question is, what is an intoxicant? And what is the Buddha relating that to? And on the spiritual path, are we talking about intoxicants being, you know, drinking beer? Are we talking about plants that have this great value? And what are we talking about? So, so ayahuasca, I definitely am in the, you know, I'm bringing up a lot of important conversations for people. And some I make very uncomfortable. Some people are excited Yes, this is what we need. Other people are like, this is not Theravada Buddhism. And I can understand both perspectives. And I have a great deal of respect for the elders council that I am uh, have grown up with over the last 20 years. And I have great respect for my own intuition and the work that happens in Peru. And so somehow I'm holding both of these, which seem like paradoxes or opposing views, but one informs the other for me. And so I just want to really honor that for some people hearing these things, it might create a trigger response for them or a fear or um, especially maybe if they've come out of 12 step community or they've seen people in psychedelic communities acting in ways that harm others, right? Because not all communities have integrity and not all spiritual communities have integrity, right? There's been a lot of, you know, spiritual communities with scandals of ethics and there's a lot of, so this is a path that we're trying to walk with integrity on any path, be it a meditative community, be it a community that mixes plant-based medicine with meditation practices. You have to have integrity. And for me, I even have more integrity because of it, because it requires it. Anytime you're going to accelerate something, you have to use a lot of wisdom and be extraordinarily mindful so the acceleration part is really that you can move through blockages. Now, our retreat, what I've discovered is I've become more extreme with our screening process because these retreats, because we go so fast through material, we have eight ceremonies, which is kind of insanely brilliant. I keep wanting to go down to seven ceremonies, but when I try, everyone goes, no, no. I go, don't you guys want a night off? We could have dinner. Everyone goes, no, we want our eighth one, <laughs> which I find very funny. I've talked to many people who have done a lot of ayahuasca and without fail, everyone who I tell how many ceremonies we had, on Lotus Fine Journeys as just a jaw-dropping response when they hear that we do eight ceremonies in two weeks. And that's without fail. These are people who are not new to ayahuasca. They've done 50, 100 ceremonies. One thing that I found to be the real challenge was specifically doing two nights on, then one night off, that format. Because just to me, to do that second night in a row, I found to be very tough. Can you talk about why you've chosen this number of ceremonies in this particular format for two nights on, one night off? Well, you know, there's something about, and yeah, every now and then we get someone who it's overwhelming, but our last few groups, 
they have been wanting to stay and even do more. I mean, it was just amazing. I was astounded. Not everyone is like that. And firstly, when I first started going to Peru, I was at retreat centers where we did a similar schedule. We used to do seven and 12 days. So I upped it. I upped it one more. And the reason that I like, even though I might end up taking it down to seven at some point, I like the idea that we create an extremely safe container, right? We come, we bond, we have the ethical guideline. I'm there every moment. We have our healers. We have everything set up. We have this beautiful, comfortable environment where people can sleep. They can get the right nourishment. A lot of these ayahuasca centers, the food is not good. They're living on a thatched hut on a wet mattress, so they're not sleeping that well. But we have this incredibly comfortable environment. And People really want to have a life-changing experience. So I think, well, you want to come work with me. You want to come to Peru. We're all ready to go. Let's just go for it. Let's get the things that might take a long time, right? So this is what leads me to wanting everybody to have, you know, an awareness-based practice. This is kind of key now. So when people come in every now and then, I'm comfortable letting someone in who doesn't, but I'm very mindful that people who I like to have people who have a set practice, who meditators say doing yoga. Now that doesn't guarantee anything necessarily, but what it does is there's some training in stabilizing awareness, which can be really helpful if we want to go that that intensely. But it's meant to be life changing and. I liked the intensity that I underwent early on because right now we don't have a lot of time to lose. We don't know what the next moment's going to bring. So for me, there's an urgency. The rainforest is being cut down at such a rapid pace. We don't even know if we'll have ayahuasca in a few years at the rate the destruction of the Amazon is happening. These are where those plants grow So for me, there's an interesting kind of urgency with it. Like I want to give people every ounce that I have and give them the opportunity to go as deep as they can because they don't know when they'll be back to that area or when they'll be able to go into that, you know, state again, because our retreat really is like one long ceremony. It really is. And the work can go very deep if we, we all can go together and be very supportive and, You know, so I've become more supportive with aftercare and recommendations. And so, so the two weeks is the first part. And then you have like a week or two after where you need to tend to your process skillfully. I don't want people going right back to work and jumping on 40 hour flights. You know, I was like, okay, you have to do this. There's self-care. This is really a three to four week retreat, ideally, but you know within that. But but I want to provide something that's going to really change lives and help us really grow. It's time to move. We don't, if it was a different age and time, I might be like, oh, let's just do two or three and we'll just hang out. Right. But now it's like, guys, we got work to do. Let's do it for the benefit of all beings. We kind of got to go a little faster now. Got to wake up a little bit quicker. So that's kind of my view of it which maybe is different than other people's, but that's my, my body feels that 
I need to do that. So until I kind of get a different download about how to do it, it feels like that's what I'm going to offer is a, a very fast accelerated. And within that, we'll just be as safe and go as with as much love and light as we can provide each guest. I felt that the medicine continued for weeks and months afterwards. I couldn't fully appreciate it, but I found that to be very true. I felt that the medicine was in some certain way guiding me really for months afterwards. There were a series of things that happened to me in terms of the way that my path unfolded, including starting this podcast. And I think that the only way that happened was because we went so deep into working with the medicine and had so many ceremonies. Right. We go really deep all the way to the bottom of the barrel. <laughs> and you got to be ready for those who are well prepared. They like it. And you were well prepared. It was just an acceleration for you. And it, for all of us, you know, it's an acceleration for me too when I'm there. I'm going with everybody else. Our whole team is, the maestro is, you know, Diohannes is, and everybody is, you know, we kind of go on that ride together. But we're in interesting times. And I think our pace is matching the kind of swiftness that we have to move on the planet now for the benefit of all beings. Well, I think that's a wonderful place at which to conclude. But before we go, I want to give people an opportunity to learn more about where they can find out more about you, Spring, and about Lotus Vine Journeys. Yeah, it's been so fun being with you on the show, and I'm just so happy for you. And I think this you're made for this kind of thing. You're great and so much wisdom and about so many different topics. So I feel... I want to give you a big congratulations, and I'm so happy to be here. And yes, if people are interested in attending an ayahuasca, Buddhist-based ayahuasca retreat, they can just Google Lotus Vine Journeys, and they will get the website with all the information. We have five retreats coming up, and that's exciting. Big retreat season arriving soon. And then if they want to find me personally, I have all kinds of teachings. I have a YouTube channel. I have a lot of online teachings on my website. They can just go to springwasham.com. They'll get all the info there. That's where they can find out about the Peru retreats. And then all my other retreats, they can just go on my website, springwasham.com. So Lotus Vine, which I like the name is like Lotus for the Buddha, Vine for the a vine of ayahuasca, and then the journey is the hero's journey. Gotta go, gotta go on it. <laughs> Speaking of the hero's journey, it's a very archetypal experience for sure. You do have a retreat coming up in April, right? Yep. We have an April retreat. That retreat's just about full, but we have our May and June, July, and September with plenty of spots. They're filling up, but we have spots available and they can kind of go and read through everything. We have all the video testimonials. We have everything out there to take a look at. Well, I'd highly encourage people to learn more about the retreats if they're interested and about you, Spring. So thank you so much for your time. I had a lot of fun and we'll talk again soon. 
This episode has ended, but head over to hackingtheself.org to access all of the resources and links mentioned in today's show, as well as bonus content available exclusively to the show supporters on patreon.com. That's patreon.com slash hacking the self. Thank you for listening to Hacking the Self, optimizing physical, mental, and emotional health through the prism of science, technology, and spirituality.